You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, can you please turn on your cell phones in case you get a better offer? Where you've come from is gone. Where you thought you were going to never existed. And where you are is no good unless you can get away. Where is there a place for you to be? Nowhere. But if you've got a good search engine, you do not need to be redeemed. Ladies and gentlemen, with us today, we have a man who works with the quantum level of human communication. We're standing in a tower that showcases the enormous engines that we can bring to bear to send atoms, molecules, electrons around the world to bring two people together. This is the man who works at the absolute lowest level of human communication words. His newest book is this is how you lose her, and he will give you a great instruction guide to do just that. <laughs> His first book was the acclaimed short story collection, Drown. His Pulitzer Prize winning novel was The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, please whisk, welcome Juno Diaz. Thank you. So good to see you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I guess. Uh, by way of like prefatory comments, thank you all for coming out. Yeah, um, you, we all know you're all busy. You know, I mean, gee whiz. Yeah, so I appreciate you coming here with your in your spare time. I also wanted to thank Rick. I'm actually a big old time fan of Rick's. I've been following um, the Agony Column since you know, really for a really long time, and I, I always enjoy when. Uh, when you're behind on reviews and you're like, I'm going to dig up some old review just to warm you dudes up, you know? So it's, um, it's a real pleasure to be here. It's a real pleasure. And thank all the people who made this possible again. You know, I, you guys certainly understand that artists come, they just appear, but almost always it's a bunch of people on the sideline who are doing this stuff outside of their job description and outside of their pay rate to bring people like me around. And I really kind of really appreciate and want to acknowledge that sort of invisible work that makes these events possible. And again, thank you guys. Yeah. So how do you want to do this, Rick? What are you thinking? I'm thinking you could read the first chapter of the last story. OK. Uh, just a little brief reading, I think. There's nothing a little. It's about again, three uh, pages. Should take a couple minutes. Yeah. I don't know if you guys grew Utter up. Utter brilliance. A, a highly doubtful, but thank you. <laughs> you know, highly doubtful. There's a voice here that you will never forget. Reading, okay. reading him is like, damn you, hearing. Rick. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Come I on, have to man. Say, the, remember the first time you heard Aretha Franklin, that voice Come on, coming Rick. at you? This is the, this is the, the literary this, equivalent of this that. This is weed smoking, the consequences. <laughs> Young people, stay away from it. 
For real, this is what happens. Come on, Rick, <laughs> cut, the, cut it out. You know, this is like a banal second person voice. This is actually intentionally attempting to get away from uh, anything that would be remotely considered attractive, you know? So I'm just gonna read it, um, second person. It's a story called The Cheater's Guide to Love. Yeah, and um, for those of you who are interested in narrative, you know the second person as a form sucks. It's like kind of repellent. Most of your experience with the second person was as a young person. The second person command form and totally made you hate like adults. So here we go. Year zero, your girl catches you cheating. Well, actually she's your fiance, but hey, in a bit, it so won't matter. She could have caught you with one sucia, she could have caught you with two, but as you're a totally batshit cuero who didn't ever empty his email trash can, she caught you with 50. Sure, over a six year period, but still, 50 fucking girls? God damn. Maybe if you'd been, maybe if you'd been engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita, you could have survived it. But you're not engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita, your girl is a bad-ass salsedeña who doesn't believe in open anything. In fact, the one thing she warned you about that she swore she would never forgive was cheating. I'll put a machete in you, she promised. <laughs> and of course, you swore you wouldn't do it. You swore you wouldn't do it. You swore you wouldn't. And you did. She'll stick around for a few months because you dated for a long, long time because you went through much together, her father's death, your tenure madness, her bar exam, and because love, real love, is not so easily shed. Over a tortured six month period, you will fly to the DR, to Mexico, to New Zealand. You will walk the beach where they filmed the piano, something she'd always wanted to do, and now in penitent desperation, you give it to her. She is immensely sad on that beach and walks up and down the shining sand alone, bare feet in the freezing water, and when you try to hug her, she says, don't. She stares at the rocks jutting out of the water, the wind taking her hair straight back. On the ride back to the hotel, up through those wild steeps, you pick up a pair of hitchhikers, a couple, so mixed it's ridiculous, and so giddy with love that you almost throw them out the car. <laughs> she says nothing. Later in the hotel, she will cry. You try every trick in the book to keep her. You write letters, you drive her to work, you quote Neruda, you compose a mass email disowning all your sucias, you block their emails, you change your phone numbers, you stop drinking, you stop smoking, you claim you are a sex addict and start attending meetings. You blame your father, you blame your mother, you blame the patriarchy, you blame Santo Domingo, you find a therapist, you cancel your Facebook, you give her the passwords to all your email accounts, <laughs> you start taking salsa classes like you always swore you would so the two of you could dance together, you claim that you were sick, you claim that you were weak, it was the book, it was the pressure, and every hour like clockwork you say that you're so, so sorry. You try it all, but one day she will simply sit up in bed and say, no more. And yeah, and you will have to move from the Harlem apartment that the two of you have shared. You consider not going. You consider a squat protest. In fact, you say you won't go, but in the end, you do. For a while, you haunt the city like a two-bit ball player waiting for a call up. You phone her every day and leave messages which she doesn't answer. 
You write her long, sensitive letters, which she returns unopened. You even show up at her apartment at odd hours and at her job downtown, until finally her little sister calls you, the one who was always on your side, and she makes it plain. If you try to contact my sister again, she's going to put a restraining order on you. For some Negroes, that wouldn't mean shit. But you ain't that kind of a Negro. You stop. You move back to Boston. You never see her again. That's all. Thank you. They're a foreign species, aren't they? I mean, they look like Dudes. us. They have the same DNA as us, but it, they're... Uh, it's oh, aliens. I thought you meant men. <laughs> men, even those of us who are men, know we are like an alien onto ourselves, which I think is sort of an outcome of our uh, encouraged not to have much internal scrutiny. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that... I just reread uh, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Rick. <laughs> I had to. Come on, man. It was man. so much fun. Mm. And one of the things that really knocked me out about that book was the way you use, uh, you engage in what any science fiction reader would call world building. Mm. For those of us who have never been to the Dominican Republic or don't know anything about that and immigrant experience, and you just use, you create that world by using in part the language of fans of world-building fiction. Sure. And I thought that was such an interesting decision to do that. Tell us a little bit just about creating that kind of character and the, your fascination with that kind of literature. No, that's really a great observation, Rick. I mean, one of the things I teach at MIT is I teach a class for, of world-building, yeah, for various narrative media. So I have kids who like want to do comic books, I got kids who are working on computer games, kids who are working on film, and kids are doing pen and paper stuff, they're doing like fiction. And so, you know, each of these kind of mediums has their different affordances, but world building is in a, sort of an essential component of this stuff. And what interests me really deeply was that all of us go about worlds where we kind of take them for granted, you know, that, that old sort of super brainy word, our doxa, right? Like what we are commonplace, a thing that we just don't even think about. But if you're going to do any kind of art and tell any kind of story, you have to produce the world where your characters and their conflicts are set. Even if it's the real world, you have to produce it. You have to, like, create it. You have to world build. Most of us don't notice world building in what we would call straight fiction. Yeah, mm -hmm. like what we would call um, kind of literary fiction or mainstream fiction. But, of course, it's occurring. And so what interested me really deeply was that I grew up reading a ton of science fiction, a ton of fantasy, a ton of horror, genres where world building is what is used to heighten and contextualize the conflict, right? We know that for horror most explicitly that, you know, horror tends to use all these gothic clue, cues and all these kind of gothic settings so that we know that there's going to be some horrible thing that's going to happen and all sorts of terrible kind of dangers and monsters are much more possible because the world sort of, you know, leads us into a very unsteady terrain where monstrosity seems not to be uh, an exception but almost an inevitability. And what happens with me is that I become obsessed with reading all these books and I notice that there is almost no difference between Jane Eyre rendering her world, yeah, a world that she knew completely, you know, we're talking about the narrative presence, she knew completely well, 
but still she went out of her way to make sure she explained the world for readers. Yeah, versus a Tolkien who is in some ways the, the raison d'etre, you know, he's like the most important of our concept of the traditional world builders where he goes out of his way to explain Middle Earth. And I realized that any story worth reading requires or worth engaging in or worth playing with requires the world to be communicated um, efficiently and in many ways as beautifully as possible. So the Dominican Republic, something that I know incredibly well, and central New Jersey, another place I know really incredibly well. I mean, anybody? Jersey? Yes? Where, where, where in Jersey? Montgomery. Oh, yeah, man. I delivered pool tables there. I did. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool, man. Yeah. Anybody from Santo Domingo at all? Here. Yes. We're always, there's always one of us. So I fuerte, man. So I realized that, like, you know, I realized that the part of what I knew so well, I had to render it. You know, I had to create it. And again, the cues of good world building, for me, I just felt it was like a natural to just use fantasy, science fiction, horror um, as a way to show how there is almost no difference. And in fact, they're drawing on the same grammars. It's, it really create, makes the world so vivid for us. And one of the things, too, that I, I see in all of your fiction, in all of your stories, is a really unique sense of the voice as story. Anything that you tell us is crafted in prose and in a voice that's so compelling, we are just grabbed from the first sentence and held riveted till, this, till whatever the hell you're saying ends. And it doesn't even matter. And if I were to describe the brief, wondrous life of Oscar Wow to myself, I could describe it in a way that say, I'd say, I never read a book like that. But then when I sit down and read it, I am instantly linked. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about discovering that voice and, and you know, the, the creating the, the Junior of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, part of this comes from sort of a strategy that you have as a storyteller. I mean, especially, like, guys, if you're trying to do any kind of ideological work, which anyone who's telling stories is, even if they're not doing it consciously, you know, part of telling a story is that you're in some ways pitching an ethos, yeah? I mean, it's the nature. It comes out of it, you know? But for me, I, I tend to be really interested in topics that people have huge resistances to talking about. So I'm really interested in sort of the long-term consequences of rape, you know? I'm interested in sort of what it means to live in the shadow of a dictatorship, yeah? I'm interested in stuff like how race and racism and self-hatred organize a sexual economy. I mean, we like to think that like we just fall in love, but people fall in love in pretty predictable terms along the racial economy. And so I'm interested in all this stuff, but people don't ever want to talk about this shit. I mean, I, my MIT students, I'll be like, oh, is there any race issues in MIT? And they're like, none. <laughs> right? They're like, none. And I'm like, really? Huh? I was like, there seems to be a lot of Asian girls with white dudes. <laughs> and suddenly it's like the thing that you weren't supposed to say. You're not supposed to talk about this stuff. And suddenly they're just... Their brains are gripped by this silence. And I think that we have a lot of resistance to talk about things that we observe every day. 
And so I think part of the work that occurs with you and your voice isn't simply because you're like looking for a nice voice so that people will read the book. I need something heavy duty to misdirect the reader so that they will read a book about the consequences of rape, the consequences of how we seem to fall in love in ways that Adolf Hitler would be pleased. Yeah. And that also on top of that, that like a lot of us are haunted, deeply haunted by all sorts of both family, personal and often national histories, which we don't even recognize. And a lot of stuff, people ain't, you bring this shit up, I talk to my students about it, and that's the thing the class, my students can't wait to get off. They're just like, yo, don't talk to me about how everybody I date is lighter skinned than me. I want to do it, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you know, I don't talk about how I, we all exoticize Asian women in a certain way. I like, we just want to do it, but don't bring it up. <laughs> and I think part of what happens when you create these sort of books where you're trying to wrestle with these issues is that you need this sort of uh, what we would call ledger domain. You need this kind of sleight of hand so that people are lured into the conversation without them even knowing they're in there. And that's the plan. It never works. I'm not actually I'm not kidding. It never works. It's a gesture towards a strategy. You know, it strikes me that in a, in a sense that you're a horror fiction writer because you're writing about the things that we're scared to even know. It, mm. It's very Lovecraftian in that sense. No, no question. And, and how often, um, I mean, first, it's a nice comparison. Uh, I'm like, <gasps> but <laughs> how accurate it is, I don't know. But sort of as kind of a, a, a kind of punning into meaning, part of what we all do as artists, I mean, the reason, guys, we're in the middle of an election campaign. Y'all notice that neither of our, you know, our possible, you know, oppressors in chief, <laughs> that neither of them have mentioned an artist. You can go through a whole camp. Say. They brought Clint Eastwood. Would you consider him an artist? Yeah. Right. Right. They, that was Clint Eastwood. That was as close as we come to discussing art. <laughs> Uh, yeah. We're back in the horror genre. Yeah, yeah, no. Oof. <laughs> that was like, I don't know about you, but I literally had one of those weird moments where I was watching that. And I was like, did I start smoking crack and never tell myself? Because <laughs> you're like, what the hell? Yeah. So, it was a know, video drum moment. My God. My God, my God. So, but you know, part of the reason this is always happening is because in our culture, the thing with artists is that artists are just fundamentally attracted to the things that no one is trying to deal with. I mean, that's what art's nature is. It, it, it immediately goes for a silence, you know, immediately goes for an absence. And so it's, it's not a bad thing to do. It just means you have to have a certain constitution for it, you know? And it's, it's you know, like you said, it's, it's a bit of a horror story for both the artist and for people, because it's not as if like, the average artist gets any pleasure at bringing stuff up that other people resist. I mean, for real. If you, rare is the artist who's like goes to bed thinking, "Aha, I have been transgressive. I feel great." <laughs> usually, it costs. You know, it's not just self-validation. It usually costs an artist just as much to break these kind of force fields. But I think those of us who are drawn to being artists, we know this is important. We know that we're in service of a larger cause. So, you know, you do it. When you're uh, sitting down to, your stories have so much uh, 
insight, and it's a really interesting insight into the way that men and women uh, talk to one another because uh, it's in inference by absence. Mm. We, we, what we see is somebody who is, ab you give us somebody who is absolutely clueless in many ways as to what his, what effects his actions are going to have. And, and after a while, you know, at first you're just going, oh, well, this is pretty funny. And then after a while you're thinking, oh, wait, oh, wait. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I think that privilege requires an operational cluelessness. You know, I, I think it's no accident that uh, Junior is completely blithely unaware of what his masculinity is, sort of relationship to women, what this does. You know, I mean, I think it's in fact it, it in many ways is part of his his legacy. I think, again, it's one of those things where Junior's cluelessness uh, is what always it, the consequences of operating in a world where you have privilege is you quickly begin to realize that the, the energy it takes for you not to notice what you're doing begins to slowly eat at you, you know? And I think that, uh, you know, it, it takes, I, I'm telling you, it takes a lot of effort to sit around and pretend that you're not harming anyone, to pretend that you're not predatory. I mean, none of us like to think of ourselves as predatory, but the nature of privilege is that you're predatory. And I think that if you have any kind of a soul or any kind of compassionate soul, it creates all these kind of contradictions in you. It begins to eat at you. And I always think like, God, when I grew up, when I was growing up, most of what I was learning as a young man in a super masculine culture, I came from a, a military parent. My little brother is a combat veteran, Marine combat veteran. My sister was married into the army. My two nephews uh, served in Iraq. My family was like seriously military family. What I noticed is a lot of this shit that we were learning as boys, as men, was how to manage our masculinity. Like what we would do to take the bite off of that slowly devouring recognition. And uh, it, it, it wears you out. I, I, mm. I'd like to invite the audience to ask some questions yeah. before Uno and I said to spend the next three hours up here dweebing out. Nerding. <laughs> well, we're going to fucking do the worm on you guys. There's a gentleman in a green shirt right there. <laughs> that's you, sir. Oh, wait. There oh, it. that's what you were doing. Oh. You're so good, bro. They got you. The yeah. Oh, here we go. And so so is, I am a, a Boricua from Newark, New Jersey. Boricua, Puerto Rican for anybody who doesn't where know. Where in North New Jersey? Newark, New Jersey. Oh, Newark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. spent a lot of time in Newark. Yeah, my, my parents went to Rutgers where you went undergrad. I, grad, you? I just graduated from Cornell where you got your Master's of Fine Arts. Uh, read your Wikipedia page, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, um, Damn you. Yeah, yeah. And... and I just wanted to know how much, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your writing. Last summer when I was an intern at Hispanic Googlers Network, I started a book group, and the book we read was The Brief Wonder's Life of Oscar Wilde. And I was wondering how much of your, how much of your writing is, uh, is giving insight to those who don't know what it's like to grow up as an urban Latino youth, and how much of it is, you know, writing for uh, the Latino population and, and being that, being that, you know, that 
author that everybody knows and standing up as an example and a model for other aspiring Latino uh, writers? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, you know, I, I think part of what, what one begins to understand when one is especially a reader, yeah, is that most of us are not exposed to a culture where we're, our experiences are narrativized. Where, in other words, we're mysteries unto ourselves, especially if you come from a background like, say, an immigrant background or a Latino background. Often enough, we don't really have any language to explain who the hell we are. We don't have like 200 narratives that explain how we get here. You know what I mean? And I think that often I am not writing so that, for example, other people understand what this experience is. I'm writing so that I understand what this experience is. And in that way, it, it sort of opens up by being incredibly particular, you know, creating a space of deliberation for someone like me. It opens up that universal sort of door where anyone who's interested in this experience can sort of connect to it. I mean, again, I, I, I remember when I first read a book by someone of African descent. I mean, we live in a country where you can actually say this. I remember my first book about the African diaspora. I'm from the African diaspora. It wasn't until I read this book that I suddenly began to see and understand myself in a totally different way. Because many of us, again, we live in a culture where we're in a culture and we are ghosts. There is nothing in that culture that helps us understand ourselves. There's nothing on TV, there's nothing in books, there's nothing in the larger sort of universe that gives us any insight into our own experience. And so I guess that's my approach. My approach is that usually I'm writing to try to kind of explain this experience to myself through my characters, but that guarantees that anyone who's interested and who enjoys it will also join me on the same exploration. As far as the last part of it, um, you know, again, it's, it's, you're an artist and you know that you're coming out of a community. I'm coming out of a Dominican, African diasporic, Caribbean, military, Jersey, and then a million other spaces background, you know, nerd, whatever, you know. And I guess I'm aware that as a writer, as an artist, my presence is really just what I would call a marker of absence. The fact that I'm a Dominican writer is just speaks to how many thousands of Dominican writers we don't have in need. You know, the fact that I'm like a Caribbean writer explains, for me, it's more, I'm standing in for how many more stories we need. I don't think I represent anyone, but I think I am a marker of a great, unhappy absence. So there's other hands, yeah? Oh, is that it? I don't think this is working. It, it is. is. It Great. is. Uh, okay, so you mentioned, you said that you, you think of um, privilege as predatory and that it eats away and you're using masculinity as an example. Do you see, do you apply that to something like white privilege, uh, mm. as a, which I never thought of as eating away at anyone since they're kind of unaware of it? And do you feel qualified to write about it? As, obviously, masculinity is something you write about and maybe feel qualified as a man, but... Writing, writing about that in terms of race issues as opposed to gender issues where you're not white. Um, I don't know. I just wonder how you, is that an analogy that you can also apply to, to, to white privilege? But without any question. I mean, I, I feel like we often, again, the training we get in this country is that we rarely get a starter course on white supremacy. <laughs> 
But I think it's very important for us to have a starter course of white supremacy because we tend to think that that's American History 101. Yeah. <laughs> but we also tend to think that white supremacy is a discussion of white people. White supremacy doesn't, if you think, guys, if, if you really think that white people are running white supremacy, that's crazy. They can't do the work to run it. I think that the nature is that white supremacy is in every single person in the system. So that someone like me in the Dominican Republic, all I have to do is to take you into one of our pharmacies and show you all the skin lightening creams, show you all the, the horrors that people inflict on their skin to try to match a white ideal. You don't even need white people to practice white supremacy. In fact, it works best when there's actually not a large collective of white folks around. And I mean, I think that white supremacy is a force. It's sort of like a gravitational force in almost all the cultures, not in an almost, in all the cultures of what we call the new world. And, and I certainly am very much interested in this. I mean, my characters are aware, even within their group, of how lightness as a privilege and darkness as something to be avoided or at least to be thought of in certainly particularly deformed ways, like you know, a certain kind of darkness in male becomes hypersexualized, and darkness in female becomes a sort of desirable mulata. But again, I think that this is something that eats at all of us. Because think about how white supremacy has divided folks from a real sense of communion with each other. You know, and how it has just damaged communities. I mean, I don't know if you've seen these figures of how many billions of dollars worldwide are being spent by people trying to burn their skin pale. So I guess for me, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's a, any kind of privilege is a predator that eats at us. Yeah? But I always say to my students, I'm like, you can take every single damn white person on the earth, put them on a spaceship, send them out, and we will keep white supremacy running fully well. Yeah? In China, try to be a black person trying to teach English in China. You know? You can't get a job. You can't get a job. I have a student who went to China to try to teach English, and they're like, we only want white people. So I think that this is something that is important, and as an artist, I'm just drawn to it. Hi. So uh, I was reading the new bio of David Foster Wallace recently, and there was a lot of talk about um, various authors' thoughts on the contemporary state of literature and like really consciously writing with an ethos, like um, Betty Tanellis and uh, Franzen saying, like, you know, we have to return to literature's roots and um, paraphrasing, it's unlikely that anyone with a computer at their job is writing good fiction. And since you're at Google and you teach at MIT, I'm wondering if you have like maybe thoughts on that particular statement, but generally on like the role of fiction in an increasingly like Twitterized world. Sure, yeah, yeah. Do I have any like stupendously unhelpful generalizations? Um, <laughs> it's really what it is because, um, well, no, but it's really what it is. To, it, it's so strange to hear authors talk about the state of American fiction. Uh, guys, I read a book, this is what I do for a living. I read a book every two or three days. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a herb like that. But I have probably read 0.00001% of American literature. For me to draw any conclusions on my reading about what's going on in American literature, Franzen has shown no awareness. Hey, totally respect the guy. But he's shown no awareness of what women writers are up to. I've never heard him ever 
mention a writer of color, ever. I mean, he doesn't seem to have any awareness of what the other America's writing. I'm not sure that we understand well what's happening in any artistic pursuit. Now, are there certain tendencies? Certainly. But I wonder if our descriptions of our art don't reveal mostly our ignorance of what's going on on the ground. And again, I'm not so sure. I mean, certainly we're being dispersed and atomized and our attention is being multiply divided by this kind of world which is asking us to constantly consult a machine every three seconds to kind of feel normal. But we have been under weirder conditions before and we've produced enormous art. You know, I, I think that the challenges are real. Living in this pace that we live now is a real challenge not to be dismissed. But I guess I have an enormous faith because I come from a community that has come out of worse situations than this and has produced most of the culture that we call American and is quite beautiful. And so I guess in my mind, I think that we're not as bad as people make us look. And our resistances to these kind of forces is certainly valiant. Uh, but the reality of the forces arranged against us cannot be under, you know, undervalued. And I, I, I don't know, I just, I'm, I guess I'm a utopian. I really believe that writing inside of a problem often generates answers. And that sitting from up top and saying that we need to return to, what literature are we going to return to? I'm like, Franzen is the whitest white, 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 white. He wants to, he wants to return to what, the 70s when it was white, 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 white? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what utopian past there is where things are better. We're, we're jacked up. We're human. We take both our hands intuitively, put it around our own necks, and try to choke ourselves to death. We just do it naturally. And the nature of us is also to try to fight that. So, I don't know. I mean, no disrespect to my fellow writers, but the reality is it's tough, but you young people are always up to the challenge. You surprise us. Madame. Oh, no, you had a your mic, sir, please. And yeah. then we'll pass that over. Sure, no problem. I was on. All right. Um, well, I think the answer to your question is Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? That's, that's where we want to go. Um, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, we, we, you know, here, uh, I'm a sort of a digital humanist, and so we have a few things going on here that are kind of interesting, which I'd be happy to talk about maybe later. Something like the Ingram Viewer, we're actually able to look over, like, millions of books and kind of get, at least from a linguistic level, uh, an idea of what might be going on currently, which is kind of interesting. But what, I have a more important question to ask you, which is, we were talking about privilege, and you said you teach at MIT, mm. so correct. So, and I was wondering, because you mentioned earlier that neither of the presidential candidates have really mentioned art, artists, humanities, what you think from your position of privilege of being at MIT, because it's not exactly like a regular liberal arts school funding-wise, um, what you think that uh, people can do to promote the arts and humanities what is there, I mean, other than just speaking out, because obviously, you know, the way we're going, and excuse me, we're at Google right now, is the STEM fields get all the funding, right? So what do you think, like, is possible yeah. for us to do to support art? No, I think it's a wonderful question. And I think, you know, what's funny about MIT is that MIT, for me, is just emblematic of the larger culture. I mean, MIT just makes more explicit 
stuff that's being said all across America. And usually all across America, they're saying art is frivolous or it's utterly irrelevant. Yeah. And MIT just sort of makes that sense more explicit. They're like, we know we're too busy doing this other stuff, so we don't need this. Yeah. And, but it's the same kind of general argument. I think in the end, we're always stuck in a situation where the promotion of art is a grassroots movement. When I hear Republicans talking about a faith-based initiative, to believe in arts and to believe that communities deserve art is literally a faith-based initiative. Because in the sort of economy we live now, where everything has to show black, everything has to be like, well, what's the economic outcome of it? Art doesn't correspond to this at all, sure. at all. And so our logic of this sort of way that the world works, it sort of leaves art out of it. But again, there's a billion strategies. Most of us are pursuing it. You know, people form book groups. Yeah. People go see movies occasionally. You know, people like TV shows and have conversations about them. The real thing for me when I'm at MIT is that my goal at a place like that, yeah, for me, MIT is like when I immigrated to the United States, I immediately entered the top-notch privilege in the world. So going to MIT was paled to my immigration to the US. You know, that was real privilege. MIT, eh, yeah. But what I felt that my absolute role at a place like MIT is, is to champion the centrality and fundamental importance to art in a place where you, it's really you against everybody. Yeah. But there also is so many allies. You'd be amazed how many people, given the chance to support art, will. And it's, it, but, but it's a fight we have to do. And, you know, before it used to be like, you know, we had to have our civil rights, we have to have our civic engagement. But certainly we've come to a place now where our sort of social ecology has made art very, very threatened. And we all have to push and there's a billion strategies. You know, me, I go into my students and model my excitement, and my enthusiasm. And that's not a small thing. Because if you convince an MIT student that art is essential to their well-being and to their practice, you've flipped a person who otherwise would never have been flipped. And you just got to do it that way. And other people do it other ways. You have these sort of meetings here. Um, but the battle is long. But our love for the arts is more powerful. I mean, that's the thing. We all love certain kinds of art. And that's the thing that keeps us going, despite the desert of our social moment. Well, we're a narrative species. Sure. And that's why stories are so important to us. We, if I ask any one of you people here who you are, you're going to tell me a story. Yeah. So yeah. we all need to know about that. Last question. Okay. So my question is actually about genre fiction. Mm. You mentioned that you read a lot of science fiction and fantasy when you were growing up. And I also did. And one of the things that, that I noticed was that the future was very white mm. uh, in reading, especially science fiction, certainly reading fantasy was a little different because of that incredible nostalgia for a certain type of whiteness. Um, so I'm wondering if you're still reading in that genre and how you feel about the field today. And also, since you use so many tropes of, of the kind of genre fiction, if you've thought about expanding your writing into that arena? Yeah, I wrote and published uh, a science fiction story like a couple months ago called Monstro, which is uh, appeared in the New Yorker. It's kind of an alien virus, giant monster invasion story, right? Um, sir, look, I, the genre is shifting very, very swiftly. 
you have all sorts of new practitioners, you know, N.K. Jameson. You've got all these really interesting people of color writing, sort of giving us, uh, giving the future, I think, a much more realistic view. But what's interesting about even the whitest white science fiction or fantasy future is that it's extraordinary how some of the preoccupations that don't appear in realistic fiction take over genre fiction. For example, I come from a country haunted by an American-backed dictatorship. The average American is not aware of how much we love to fund dictatorships and the sort of immense impact that has. The average American, if you guys are not in the military, you don't, or don't have a military family, you have no idea what the American military is, looks like at a global level. Those of us who are in military families, we're like, we have a totally different sense of the map. Realistic fiction doesn't do a good job of that. But you read science fiction and fantasy, and there's stuff in there about genocide, about slavery, about the breeding of human beings, which if you're of African descent in this hemisphere, that's your legacy. You were bred into existence, usually raped, but it was a breeding project of form. And there were questions of power, of how a dictator, how one person with immense amount of power. So while the future often, not more than often, is predominantly white, a lot of the, the issues that people are wrestling with are sort of the taboos that realistic literature doesn't like to address. And so that one can recuperate, even from like the whitest narrative, some interesting things. But what really I'm excited about is how many young, brown, colored nerds are out there beginning to totally transform the field. Yeah. And there's a bunch of young people that are coming out and that I'm like really, really excited about. Again, I don't know if I'll ever be able to really write a full science fiction book because it actually, it's way hard, man. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't mind doing it. You know, you, you always have, if you have a young love, if you like love tennis, there's always a part of you who wants to like, I want to win a competition or I want to play somebody, you know? And so there's some of that. <laughs> but I keep reading it. I keep reading it. I mean, I love these Filipino brothers who, these Pinoy brothers who write this comic book, the Luna Brothers, I don't know if you know them. Really fantastic young brothers. They're Pinoy and they, they write an under-image comics. They've written some wonderful books, Girls, The Sword. And again, I think it's happening, but we have to look for it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for your time and for coming here and joining us today. Please welcome and say thank you to our guest. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.